Chapter 13 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 5, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Monitor and Merrimack. In a great war such as that of the rebellion, an inventive people like the Americans could not fail to originate novelties and develop progress in methods of fighting. The most critical point of the contest on both sides was the possibility of foreign intervention. This compelled the North to find effective means to enforce the long and difficult seacoast blockade, while for the South it constituted a prime object to break it. Both sides, therefore, turned eagerly to experiments in the new system of ironclad ships. In the destruction of the Gosport Navy Yard at the outbreak of the war, the United States steam frigate Merrimack was burned to the water's edge and sunk. The rebels soon raised her, and finding her hull undamaged and the engines yet serviceable, they proceeded by help of the Tredegar ironworks at Richmond, to convert her into an ironclad. A wedge-shaped prow of cast iron weighing 1,500 pounds was fastened to the stem two feet under water and projecting about two feet in front. A roof of wood two feet thick with its sides inclining at 36 degrees to the water's edge was made to cover about two-thirds of the hull, being the central part. This was plated with iron armor composed of two plates, each two inches thick. Within this protection was placed a battery of ten guns, four on each broadside and one each at the stem and stern. The Navy Department at Washington was no less prompt to study the question of ironclads. The special session of Congress appropriated one and a half million of dollars for the work. A public advertisement invited plans and offers of construction. A competent board of naval officers examined the devices presented and recommended three of the most promising, which by way of trial were put under contract. Our immediate demands, said their report, seem to require first, so far as practicable, vessels invulnerable to shot of light draught of water to penetrate our shoal harbors, rivers, and bayous. Of the three plans adopted, the one presented by John Erickson of New York, a Swede by birth but an American citizen by adoption, a man of original genius, of great scientific acquirements, and of long experience in engineering service, proved in the end to conform best to these requirements. The board had doubts of its sea-going qualities, but at once recognized it as a plan which will render the battery shot and shell proof. The hull, 127 feet long, 36 feet wide, and 12 feet deep, was covered by a flat, overhanging deck, slightly wider but much longer, pointed at both ends, closed and made watertight, and rising only one or two feet above the waterline. On this stood a revolving turret, twenty feet in diameter and nine feet high, composed of wrought iron plates bolted together to a total thickness of eight inches. Inside this were two eleven-inch Dahlgren guns, trained side by side and revolving with the turret. Erickson named his novel ship the Monitor. 
when public humor afterwards christened his invention by calling it a cheese box on a raft the designation expressed the exact intention of his model in observing the movements of timber rafts down the norwegian coast he had noticed that they suffered no danger from the waves which simply rolled over them so the closed platform of the monitor which would permit the waves to roll freely over its surface required only its comparatively thin edge above and below the water line to be protected with heavy iron armor by this clever device weight which is the main difficulty in armored ships was reduced to a minimum and enabled him to combine great thickness of mail with the utmost lightness of draught information concerning the progress of the work on these first american ironclads reached both belligerents the officers at fort monroe reported in october eighteen sixty one that the merrimac she was named the virginia by the rebels would probably make an effort to get to sea this proved a premature rumor late in the following february the navy department had more trustworthy information through a union mechanic then at work upon her that she was nearly finished the rebels doubtless had similar information concerning the ironclads building at the north but in each case such clandestine knowledge was necessarily vague and fragmentary enough however was known in washington to make it probable that the merrimac would prove formidable in a naval contest delay had occurred in the work on the union ironclads the time of their possible presence there could not be fixed with certainty and their ability to meet such an antagonist was purely a matter of speculation when the monitor was recommended by the naval board and put under contract even the most experienced and most sanguine officers had no expectation of the remarkable fighting powers she afterwards demonstrated on thursday night the sixth of march eighteen sixty two the assistant secretary of the navy was called to a council of war then being held at the executive mansion at which the president cabinet and various military officers were present the peninsular campaign had been substantially agreed upon but its details were yet under discussion president lincoln once more explained that taking the whole army first to annapolis to be embarked in transports would appear to the extremely sensitive and impatient public opinion very much like a retreat from washington it would be impolitic to explain that it was merely a first step by way of the chesapeake bay and fort monroe towards richmond could not he asked fifty thousand or even ten thousand men be moved in transports directly down the potomac this would be a self-evident forward movement which the public would comprehend without explanation the objection was that transports could not safely pass existing rebel batteries on the potomac could not the navy destroy those batteries assistant secretary fox replied that the navy could silence the batteries but that unless held by our army they would immediately be reoccupied rebuilt and again armed and manned by the rebels and we needed a prolonged not a temporary respite the army officers objected that to occupy hold and defend those batteries from land attacks would produce a local and partial movement and diversion only to cripple and delay the main and distant expedition 
Lincoln finally decided that the Navy should in any event engage and silence the Potomac batteries, even if only for a temporary and moral effect. There being as yet no telegraph to Fort Monroe, orders were transmitted by sea directing that certain ships of war and the monitor which that day sailed from New York should ascend the Potomac for this duty. The Merrimack was for the moment forgotten, but being remembered next day, supplementary orders were sent directing a suspension of action till Assistant Secretary Fox could visit Fort Monroe and consult the naval officers in command. When he arrived there on Sunday morning, an important naval engagement had occurred, the renewal and conclusion of which he witnessed. Three Union frigates lay at anchor under the guns of Fort Monroe, and two others under the guns of the Union earthworks near Newport News, six miles to the southwest, when on Saturday, March 8, about noon, the Merrimack appeared in the mouth of the Elizabeth River Channel, which enters Hampton Roads about midway between the points named above, and headed directly for Newport News. She was accompanied by two small tugs armed with one gun each, while three other side-wheel steamers out of the James River, respectively of one, two, and twelve guns, also joined the Merrimack after the attack. The ships at Fort Monroe immediately slipped their cables and started for the encounter, following the Merrimack towards the southwest, the Minnesota, twin ship to the original Merrimack, under steam, the St. Lawrence sailing frigate, in tow of a gunboat, and the Roanoke with a broken shaft towed by tugs. But owing to a recent northwest gale, water was low in the channel, and all of these vessels, being of deep draft, soon grounded. The Minnesota, north of the middle ground, one and a half miles from Newport News, the St. Lawrence near her, and the Roanoke still farther behind. Beyond an occasional exchange of fire at long distances, they were therefore unable to join in the main fight. The sailing frigate Congress and the Razid frigate Cumberland, anchored at Newport News, saw the Merrimack coming and prepared for action. Plowing up the bay with her sloping roof and her low prow, she looked to them like a huge half-submerged crocodile. Her warning shot was given when yet a mile away. Exchanging a broadside with the Congress as she passed her at the distance of three hundred yards, she rushed full speed at the Cumberland, which had opened on her with her pivot guns and now greeted her with broadsides as she neared. But neither the broadsides of the wooden ships nor the fire of the shore batteries had any apparent effect. The showering iron hail glanced and bounded from the sloping tortoise-shaped back of the leviathan-like India rubber balls. On and on she came with accelerated momentum, till within fifteen minutes after the first shot was fired, she struck the Cumberland forward of the starboard forechains. The crash of her iron prow through the timbers and hull was distinctly heard above the din of battle. The attacked vessel was forced back upon her anchors with great violence, and a hole the size of a hogshead was opened in the hull, into which the water rushed in a deluge. Pumps were of no avail against such a flood, and the good ship was doomed. 
and besides this the shells of her iron-cased destroyer were spreading death on her decks as she backed away but yet hovered over her victim at convenient nearness her guns continued to belch forth irresistible havoc history records no more determined bravery than was displayed by the officers and crew of the cumberland neither present disaster nor impending danger checked their devoted heroism with men cut down at their guns and the ship settling to her fate under their feet they answered broadside with broadside shot with shot when the water in the hold rose and drowned the forward magazine they still passed up powder from the one aft the last gun was fired when the sea was already running into the muzzle of the gun beside it after three-quarters of an hour of such fighting the gallant ship with the dead and wounded of her crew and some even of her heroic defenders who clung doggedly to their posts after orders had been given to save themselves went to the bottom in fifty feet of water with the stars and stripes still flying from her masthead her antagonist did not come from the encounter entirely unharmed the blow which sunk the cumberland wrenched off her iron prow and slightly twisted her stem the cumberland's solid shot broke the muzzles of two of her guns and killed two of her men wounding nineteen others ebb tide having begun the merrimac steamed a short distance upstream to turn and then attacked the congress which lay several hundred yards east of the cumberland the congress seeing the fate of her companion slipped her cable and by using her sails and with the help of a tug ran ashore and grounded where the iron monster could not follow but the precaution was futile the merrimac returning took up a raking position off her quarter at two cables length soon silenced the few guns that bore upon her and after an hour's fight creating frightful carnage the commander having been killed and the ship set on fire in several places the congress struck her colors confederate officers charge that fire was again opened from the congress after surrender which union officers deny the conflict of assertion is probably explained by the circumstance that fire was opened upon the rebel boats from the shore with both cannon and musketry a proceeding perfectly justifiable by the laws of war the event caused the merrimac to open once more on the congress with hot shot and incendiary shells and whether from these or other causes she burned till midnight when the explosion of her magazine ended the conflagration the merrimac with her consorts withdrew from the field of conflict firing at both the minnesota and st lawrence as they passed down the channel at the distance of a mile but the merrimac offered no serious attack probably expecting to capture them the following day at nightfall the rebel flotilla anchored under the guns of their shore batteries on sewell's point at the entrance of the channel to norfolk whence they had come among the union commanders the gloomy disasters of the afternoon were heightened by the seemingly hopeless apprehension for the morrow with great difficulty the tugs had hauled the roanoke and st lawrence back to fort monroe the minnesota was hard aground but what ship ashore or afloat could stand before this new and terrible marine engine that moved unharmed through the repeated broadsides of the most powerful naval armaments 
telegraphic news of these events reached washington the next morning sunday and the hasty meeting of the cabinet and other officials who immediately gathered at the white house was perhaps the most excited and impressive of the whole war stanton unable to control his strong emotion walked up and down the room like a caged lion mcclellan was dumbfounded and silent lincoln was as usual in trying moments composed but eagerly inquisitive critically scanning the dispatches interrogating the officers joining scrap to scrap of information applying his searching analysis and clear logic to read the danger and find the remedy chase impatient and ready to utter blame seward and wells hopeful yet without encouraging reasons to justify their hope the possibilities of the hour were indeed sufficiently portentous to create consternation what might not this new and irresistible leviathan of the deep accomplish a fleet destroyed fort monroe besieged the blockade broken the richmond campaign thwarted new york laid under contribution washington city and the public buildings burned and the government in flight foreign intervention would surely follow a succession of events like these which heated imagination easily called up even at the risk of creating a momentary panic it seemed necessary to warn the authorities of the seaboard cities to prepare all possible resources of their own for defense the best available provision to make washington city secure that could be suggested was to prepare and load barges and canal boats to be sunk in the channel of the potomac at kettle bottom shoals and other points quartermaster general meigs and captain dahlgren were charged by the secretary of war with this duty since guns were of no avail against the merrimac it was decided to have recourse to her own process of ramming for this purpose the strongest and swiftest merchant steamer in new york the vanderbilt was chartered strengthened by filling her bow with timbers and plating it outside with iron and sent to fort monroe under orders to try to run down her antagonist at the first opportunity and at whatever risk but more effective help had arrived and even while these councils were in progress was bringing the question to a practical solution by the light of the burning congress on saturday night a rebel pilot saw a strange craft glide into the waters of hampton roads it was the monitor which safely towed from new york arrived between nine and ten o'clock so little was the new system and model in favor that the older officers of the navy had generally condemned it in advance and manifested no ambition to command her lieutenant john l worden however had accepted the duty and was immediately informed that a critical trial was at hand a little after midnight he moved to a station near the minnesota which was still aground on sunday morning march nine the merrimac once more came out and steamed towards the minnesota with the expectation of easily capturing or destroying her but as she approached the monitor went out to meet her the contrast was that of a pygmy to a giant the merrimac was twice her length and breadth had more than four times her displacement and five times as many guns but her great draft twenty-two feet confined her manoeuvres to deep water while the monitor drawing only ten feet could run where she pleased 
The huge tortoise back of the Merrimac was an easy target, while her broadsides passed harmlessly over the low flat deck of the monitor, only one or two feet above water. The shore spectators now witnessed a prolonged and exciting naval duel. The small rebel gunboats withdrew. The Merrimac occasionally exchanged fire with the Minnesota, but her principal fight was with the monitor. The two ironclads moved fearlessly towards each other, firing as favorable opportunity offered, but the nine-inch and eleven-inch shells glanced without effect alike from the sloping roof of the Merrimack and the round side of the monitor's tower. The superior mobility of the latter proved a great advantage. She and her turret, says the rebel commander, appeared to be under perfect control. Her light draft enabled her to move about us at pleasure. She once took position for a short time where we could not bring a gun to bear on her. Another of her movements caused us great anxiety. She made for our rudder and propeller, both of which could have been easily disabled. We could only see her guns when they were discharged. Immediately afterwards, the turret revolved rapidly, and the guns were not again seen until they were again fired. When we saw that our fire made no impression on the monitor, we determined to run into her if possible. We found it a very difficult feat to do. Our great length and draft, in a comparatively narrow channel with but little water to spare, made us sluggish in our movements and hard to steer and turn. When the opportunity presented, all steam was put on. There was not, however, sufficient time to gather full headway before striking. The blow was given with the broad wooden stem, the iron prow having been lost the day before. The monitor received the blow in such a manner as to weaken its effect, and the damage was to her trifling. Three hours passed in this singular contest. The monitor had fired forty-one shots. She inflicted no direct damage, neither did she receive any. On both sides the shells only made slight indentations in the thick iron armor, yet it was apparent to the rebel officers that the little cheese-box on a raft was gradually wearing out her bulky antagonist. It became evident that if the Merrimack were by accident struck twice in the same place, her shield would be penetrated. She was already leaking badly. Her loss of prow, anchor, and consumption of coal was raising her so as dangerously to expose her waterline, where the iron plating was only one inch thick. A chance shot here would send her to the bottom. But at this time the monitor met with a serious accident. Her pilot house was constructed of great iron logs, nine by twelve inches thick, laid up after the manner of a log cabin, leaving spaces of half an inch between them, through which to observe the enemy and steer the ship. Lieutenant Worden, the commander, was standing in this pilot house giving orders when one of the Merrimack's shells struck the outside of the logs between which he was looking. The concussion drove the smoke and iron dust through with such force as temporarily to blind him, disabling him from command and causing a short suspension of all guidance of the monitor until he could be properly cared for. When, however, after the lapse of some 
twenty minutes lieutenant green the second officer who had by worden's direction assumed command turned his vessel again to face his antagonist he saw that the merrimac had already started in the direction of elizabeth river he fired a few shots after her but she continued her retreat refusing further combat if as the rebel commander states the merrimac was yet willing to have continued the fight she was equally ready to consent to its cessation making no further effort to shell the minnesota which still lay aground within easy reach of her guns she quit the waters of hampton roads at noon three hours before high water and steamed back to norfolk whence she had come in reality the contest had been decided by the evident perspective superiority of the monitor rather than by any present necessity of either combatant counted merely by blows received and given it was a drawn battle but practically a victory which seemed providential in its sudden relief and immense results remained with the monitor the whole event was even still broader in its effect that three hours battle in hampton roads changed the naval warfare of the civilized world a quarter of a century has elapsed and still the great powers of europe are testing the yet unsolved problem of the largest gun to destroy and the strongest armor to protect a ship of war the welcome news reached the washington authorities that same night by the newly laid telegraph changing deep anxiety into lively exultation lincoln always prudent at once saw clearly the immense value of the monitor's victory and resolved it should not be placed in jeopardy he therefore sent orders that she should not be unduly exposed and that on no account should she attempt to go to norfolk alone the preparations for blocking the potomac channel were completed and held in constant readiness and several additional swift merchant vessels were soon after stationed at fort monroe to make the destruction of the merrimac reasonably sure by running her down it turned out that she was never in a condition to go to sea and that her great draft prevented her ascending the potomac after the peninsular campaign was begun there was always an immense number of union transports in the adjacent waters to which she could have done incalculable damage for about two months she thus remained a vague terror though the menace was effectually neutralized by the monitor and the merchant war vessels assembled in triple and quadruple force to oppose and annihilate her on her part the merrimac profited by the blockade to which she was subjected by being repaired and much strengthened by a new steel and wrought iron prow by iron plating on her hull and improved ammunition on the eleventh of april she descended again to hampton roads in company with three rebel gunboats and nine small tugs but beyond getting the various unarmed vessels out of the way the union fleet made no movement for its orders provided that the monitor and other vessels should not be separated but that if the merrimac came out into favorable waters they should all go at her the position is one of defiance on both sides wrote a newspaper correspondent the rebels are challenging us to come up to their field of battle and we are daring them to come down the union fleet understood too well its primary duty of keeping the merrimac from any possibility of reaching the army transports in york river while on their part the rebel officers were also restrained by orders to remain for the protection of norfolk 
No battle grew out of this game of strategy, and at night the rebel vessels withdrew. We must anticipate somewhat the chronological order of events to bring within the present chapter the final fate of both the Monitor and Merrimack. In the progress of the Peninsular Campaign, when the Confederates found McClellan's army advancing against Richmond in such powerful numbers, it became necessary to draw in all available detachments for the defense of their capital, and on the 1st of May the evacuation of Norfolk was determined upon. On the 4th of May the Merrimack was ordered to take station where she could prevent the Union forces from ascending the James River. Huger, the rebel military commander, however, obtained a postponement of this duty till his preparations for evacuation should be further advanced. It happened by a curious coincidence that President Lincoln, Secretary Chase, and Secretary Stanton started in the evening of the 5th of May for a visit to Fort Monroe. So far as is known, it had only a general object to ascertain by personal observation whether some further vigilance and vigor might not be infused into the operations of the Army and Navy at that point. Delayed by bad weather on the Potomac, they arrived at their destination on Tuesday night, May 6. Late as it was, they immediately proceeded to the steamship Minnesota, and held a conference with commodore l m goldsborough the flag officer about the condition of things and military and naval movements in connection with the dreaded merrimac next day may seven the party visited the various places of interest the vanderbilt the monitor the ruined village of hampton the rip raps and fort monroe with doubtless a running council of war among themselves and the naval and military commanders for two important orders appear to have been given by the President that same Wednesday evening, preparations for executing which were made during the night. In pursuance of these orders, on the morning of Thursday, May 8, the new ironclad Galena, with two other gunboats, were sent up the James River, and a considerable section of the remaining fleet moved across the waters of the bay to an attack on the Confederate Sewell's Point batteries this was a reconnaissance in force troops were already embarked in transports to push across and effect a landing if it appeared practicable with a view to advance on norfolk but the cannonade from the ships called forth a spirited reply from the rebel batteries on sewell's point and after a while the merrimac appeared to take part in the fray all the big wooden vessels writes chase who with lincoln and stanton witnessed the bombardment from the rip-raps began to haul off the monitor and stevens however held their ground the merrimac still came on slowly and in a little while there was a clear sheet of water between her and the monitor then the great rebel terror paused then turned back and having finally attained what she considered a safe position became stationary again that was thought to have shown the inability of an attempt to land at sewell's point while the merrimac lay watching it says chase in another letter and the troops were disembarked from the transports but all this commotion had stirred up inquiry and elicited information and a pilot suggested that a landing might be found to the eastward beyond willoughby point 
against the general incredulity of the officers chase on friday morning may nine took the revenue cutter miami on which the party had come from washington and a tug and went on a reconnaissance to the shore indicated here some five or six miles from fort monroe soundings disclosed a feasible landing undefended by batteries or even pickets and a boat sent ashore obtained valuable information of passable roads leading to norfolk when i got back to fort monroe continues chase i found the president had been listening to a pilot and studying a chart and had become impressed with the conviction that there was a nearer landing and wished to go and see about it on the spot so we started again and soon reached the shore taking with us a large boat and some twenty armed soldiers from the rip-raps the president and mr stanton were on the tug and i on the miami the tug was of course nearest shore and as soon as she found the water too shoal for her to go farther safely the rip-raps boat was manned and sent in we had again found a good landing which at the time i supposed to be between two and three miles nearer fort monroe but which proved to be only one half or three-quarters of a mile nearer it is probable that these opportune discoveries were supplemented by other important information on the previous evening of thursday a norfolk tugboat seized the favorable opportunity to desert from the rebel service and run into newport news its officers reported that norfolk was being evacuated by the confederates and that the two or three thousand troops yet there would probably soon be gone when therefore the officials and officers were once more assembled at fort monroe an immediate advance to norfolk was agreed upon and troops were again embarked on transports and other preparations hurried forward on friday night on saturday morning may ten a successful landing and debarkation was effected at the point examined by the president and general wool marched to norfolk with a force of nearly six thousand men it is easy to glean from the various accounts that there was great want of foresight and confusion in all the military arrangements and the secretary of the treasury who accompanied the advance was probably gratified by the entirely unexpected role of being for once in his life the generalissimo of a military campaign they met only the merest show of resistance and delay at a burning bridge which was overcome by an easy detour by evening they passed through the strong but abandoned entrenchments and received from the mayor of norfolk the official surrender of the city the navy yard at gosport was in flames but the heavy guns which armed the earthworks remained as trophies a military governor was appointed and protection promised to peaceful inhabitants and from that time forward norfolk remained under the authority of the union flag the most substantial fruit of the movement soon followed the officers of the merrimac observed on saturday morning from their moorings in the mouth of elizabeth river that the confederate flag was no longer flying over the sewell's point batteries and investigation during the day proved the landing and march of the union forces the precipitate retreat of the rebel troops from all points and the final surrender and occupation of norfolk 
The unwieldy crocodile back ironclad was thus caught between two fires. The ship, reports her commander, was accordingly put on shore as near the mainland in the vicinity of Craney Island as possible, and the crew landed. She was then fired, and after burning fiercely fore and aft for upward of an hour, blew up a little before five on the morning of the 11th. The president, receiving the welcome news at the moment of departure for Washington, prolonged his stay to accompany the delighted dignitaries and officers on a flying trip up Elizabeth River to the newly captured town, and then the prow of the Miami on Sunday evening plowed past Fort Monroe and up the Potomac. So, writes Chase, in conclusion, has ended a brilliant week's campaign of the president for i think it quite certain that if he had not come down norfolk would still have been in possession of the enemy and the merrimac as grim and defiant and as much a terror as ever the whole coast is now virtually ours like the merrimac the monitor also had a dramatic end after various services she was in the following december sent to sea under sealed orders and foundered in a gale off cape hatteras nearly all the officers and crew however being saved by boats from the rhode island which was towing her thus the pioneer ships of the new system of iron armor did not long survive their first famous exploit that so astounded the nations of the earth other Union ironclads of a different model had joined the Hampton Road squadron before the destruction of the Merrimack, and before the Monitor went down she had given her name as a generic term to a whole fleet built after her model, her first successor, the Monitor Passaic, having already reached the seat of war for active service. End of chapter 13